Introduction Among the many scenes of beauty and of interest with which this fair island abounds, we know of none which contains them in such variety as the pleasant Boyne. These words, written by Sir William Wilde in 1849, hold true to this day. The Boyne Valley is the soul of Ireland's ancient east. This region is synonymous with the incredible World Heritage Site of Newgrange and the Bruna Boyne tombs. But for almost every period in Irish history, from the furthest reaches of our prehistoric past to the early modern period, it's the perfect place to encounter the story of Ireland. As well as being the best place to discover 5,000 years of Ireland's past, the Boyne Valley is also a wonderful place to discover a myriad of cultural events, festivals and celebrations of music and the arts. You can discover more on the Boyne Valley app or on our website discoverboynevalley.ie. Boynia, Newgrange, Nowth and Douth. Bruna Boynia, meaning palace or mansion of the Boyne, is a truly sacred and monumental landscape. It is one of the most important prehistoric landscapes in the world and a UNESCO World Heritage Site. One of the most iconic and popular sites in Ireland Newgrange is a spectacular example of the ingenuity and ability of Ireland's first farmers. Built over 5,000 years ago, Newgrange predates Stonehenge and the Great Pyramid of Giza by centuries. And, as it is aligned with the winter solstice, it is also one of the earliest structures known to have an astronomical function. Each year at the winter solstice, light travels through the roof box and snakes its way along the passageway before illuminating the chamber. Imagine those who built this great tomb over 5,300 years ago, standing in the dark in the cold winter air, waiting for the beam of sunlight to show that from this point forward, the darkness of winter would begin to recede and a new year had begun. Positioned near the western end of the Boyne Valley, Nowth is one of the largest of Ireland's passage tombs. It is best known for its curb of 127 stones, many of which are highly decorated with megalithic art. By sheer volume, Nowth alone boasts a quarter of all known megalithic art in Europe, with over 300 decorated stones. There are also a number of smaller satellite tombs at Nowth, and the site continued to be an important place of activity and settlement for millennia. It eventually became the royal residence of the rulers of North Brega. A large settlement grew upon and around the ancient tombs, with a number of houses and suterrains, or underground passages, constructed. In the medieval period, a large rectangular structure was constructed on top of the mound, possibly as part of an enclosed Anglo-Norman farmstead, but little of it remains today. Douth is located around two kilometres northeast of Newgrange. 
Unlike Newgrange and Nowth, Douth has never been fully excavated by archaeologists, so far less is known about the site. Douth is thought to date to around 5,000 years ago. Douth was known in early literature as the Otherworld Mound of Brezel. Medieval manuscripts explain how Douth got its name. They tell the story of how all the men of Ireland were commanded by Brezel to come together for just one day to build a tower that would reach the heavens. The king's sister secretly used magic and stopped the sun in the sky so that there would be an endless day. As time wore on, the men of Ireland became exhausted and realised they had been tricked. However, the magic spell was broken when the king and his sister committed incest. Darkness swiftly covered the land and work on the great mound was abandoned. It was said that Duod, or Darkness, would be the name of the place from that day. Ardmulchan Church The ruins of the 15th century church stand on the south side of the River Boyne and overlook one of the most beautiful vistas of the landscape. The stunning view led William Wilde to write, Here the true beauty of the Boyne, its real Rhine-like character commences, high beetling crags crowned by feudal halls and ruined chapels, steep precipitous banks covered with the noblest monarchs of the forest, dells consecrated to the moonlit dance of sprites and elves, and rock, memorable for their tales of love and legends of the olden time, catch the eye at every turn in this noble stream, presenting new beauties, ever varying pictures, here in sunshine, there in shade, with charming bits of scenery which simple prose cannot describe. The painter's art alone can embody or give an accurate representation of these. According to Wilde, this is also the location where a combined army of Vikings and Leinstermen won a great battle against the southern Enail. There is a splendid view of Dunmo Castle across the river. The castle dates to the 15th century and was the home of the Darcy family. Famously, during the Williamite Wars, George Darcy entertained King James the night before the Battle of the Boyne and his rival, King William, the night after it, inspiring the couplet. Who'll be king? I don't know. But I'll be Darcy of Dunmo. Hill of Tara The Hill of Tara is one of the most iconic archaeological landscapes in Ireland. As the majority of Tara's buildings were constructed from timber, the site appears today as a series of undulating earthworks and grassy banks and ditches. It can be a little difficult on first viewing to get a true sense of the phenomenal concentration of archaeology at Tara, and the site certainly requires visitors to use their imagination. However, at such an evocative and atmospheric place, it is not hard to conjure visions of ancient temples, palaces and tombs. At Tara, only a thin veil exists between archaeology and mythology, history and legend. 
Irish antiquarian Robert Orr Callery described Tara as the fount of our nationhood, the cradle of our faith, the seat of kings and the home of saints. It is truly a hallowed spot. With such a vista, it is no wonder that it became the ritual centre of kingship and ceremony in Ireland. Tara is deeply imbued with legend and folklore, and is associated with the goddess Maeve, the one who intoxicates. Legend has it that any man who wished to establish himself as king of Tara would have to symbolically wed himself to her. Tara is also associated with many of the other pre-Christian gods of Ireland, such as Lu. As well as being a place of ancient kings and legends, the Hill of Tara was also the setting for more recent drama. One of the key battles of Ireland's 1798 rebellion took place there, with more than 4,000 United Irishmen making an unsuccessful stand against a militia of British yeomanry at the Battle of Tara Hill. Over 350 rebels were killed. Two memorials mark their memory, a Celtic cross and gravestone and the Leah Fall, the legendary Stone of Destiny, was moved a short distance to mark their supposed burial place. In 1843, Daniel O'Connell drew on the symbolic power of Tara in the national consciousness to hold a monster rally that called for the repeal of Ireland's union with Britain, attended by a crowd that numbered over a million people. Inside the 19th century church, now the visitor centre, there is a beautiful stained-glass window by artist Evie Hone and an informative audio-visual presentation that tells the story of Tara and its many monuments. Bective Abbey Bective Abbey is a superb heritage site located in the valley of the River Boyne. It was founded in 1147 by the King of Meath and given to the Cistercian Order. Bective was a daughter house of Melifont, the first Cistercian foundation in Ireland. Unlike many other Cistercian foundations, which typically sought out wilderness and isolation, Bective was positioned on fertile agricultural land and quickly rose to prominence as an important ecclesiastical centre. While living near Bective Abbey, the noted short story writer and novelist Mary Lavin wrote, Do you know Bective? Like a bird in the nest, it presses close to the soft green mound of the riverbank. Its handful of houses no more significant by day than the sheep that dot the far fields. By the 16th century, the Cistercians of Bective Abbey had become wealthy from rents, tithes and donations. At the time that Bective was dissolved in the middle of the 16th century, it was recorded that the estate of Bective contained 1,580 acres, valued at 83 pounds, 18 shillings and 8 pence. The abbey and its possessions were purchased in 1552 by Andrew Wise, but he seems to have had financial difficulties soon after, and Bective changed hands a number of times before being transformed into a manor in the early 17th century. It came into the hands of the Bolton family and was eventually donated to the state in 1894. 
The extensive ruins that one can explore today at Bective tell the story of both the Cistercian monastic site and the private home. The cloisters which featured in the Mel Gibson film Braveheart are extremely well preserved. Trim Castle Trim Castle is the largest and undoubtedly one of the most impressive Norman castles in Ireland. It stands at an important crossing point on the River Boyne, which gave the town its name, Ochtrum, or the Ford of the Elder Trees. Trim Castle was constructed by the powerful Norman Lord Hugh de Lacey in the 1170s. His son Walter refortified the castle, and an extra story was added to the keep. Walter died in 1241, having outlived both his son and grandson. What was left of his estates was divided between his two granddaughters, Maud and Marjorie. Maud was granted Trim, and she married the wealthy noble Geoffrey de Jeanville. They brought prosperity to Trim, redeveloped the keep, and added new buildings, such as a fashionable great hall, and refortified the walls of the town. Eventually, the castle passed to their eldest daughter, Joan, who married Roger Mortimer. He would become notorious in English history as the man who had an affair with Queen Isabella, wife of King Edward II. During the 15th century, Trim Castle became a Yorkist stronghold during the War of the Roses. But by the end of the 17th century, it had fallen into disrepair and decay. It passed into state ownership in 1993 and featured prominently in Mel Gibson's film Braveheart. As the castle was never converted into a grand house in the 18th and 19th centuries, it remains largely unaltered from medieval times. Today, it is one of the best places to get a really good sense of the architecture of a medieval fortress. After the guided tour, take time to do the river walk to Newtown Trim. Simply cross the wooden bridge that leads from the car park and follow the path alongside the Boyne. The walk takes no more than 20 to 30 minutes and passes through several beautiful medieval ruins before ending up close to a rather nice old pub, Marcy Regan's, on the banks of the river. As you cross the wooden bridge, take a moment to look at the stone bridge on the left. This bridge was constructed sometime between 1330 and 1350. The tall stone tower opposite the castle is known locally as the Yellow Steeple. It too dates to the 14th century. It was the bell tower of the Augustinian Abbey of St Mary's, which once stood opposite the castle. At 40 metres tall, the Yellow Steeple is said to be the tallest medieval building still standing in Ireland. There are few visible remains of the other buildings of St Mary's, though Talbot's Castle, the fine fortified townhouse to the left of the Yellow Steeple, is thought to have incorporated abbey buildings. Talbot's castle was built shortly after the dissolution of the monasteries in the middle of the 16th century. It was said to have once been the home of the famous satirist Jonathan Swift, author of Gulliver's Travels, and vicar of Laracor on the outskirts of Trim in 1670. F. R. Higgins refers to Laracor in his poem Father and Son. Only last week, walking the hushed fields of our most lovely meath, now thinned by November, 
I came to where the road from Laracor leads to the Boyne River that seemed more lake than river, stretched in uneasy lights and stripped of reeds. The stone gate that straddles the path is called the Sheep Gate. Like the majority of medieval towns, Trim was surrounded by a defensive wall, and the gateways served as control points, where tolls and taxes could be collected easily. The low stretch of stone wall running up the slope from the Sheep Gate is what remains of the once strong defensive walls, and the Sheep Gate itself is the only surviving medieval gate into Trim. After a walk of around 15 minutes, you will come to the Cathedral of Saints Peter and Paul at Newtown. The cathedral was founded by the Norman bishop Simon de Rochefort around 1206. Although only parts of the nave and chancel survive today, it is easy to get the impression of just how large this cathedral once was. Many of the fine decorative flourishes in the stonework are still visible, and it has lovely lancet windows. The piscina, where the priest used to wash the holy vessels during Mass, is also still well preserved. Just below the cathedral is a small parish church that probably dates to the later 15th century. This site is famous for the remarkable 16th century tomb of Sir Lucas Dillon and his wife, Lady Jane Bath. The two stone effigies on the tomb are separated by a ceremonial sword of state. The tomb is known locally as the tomb of the jealous man and woman, and it is believed that instead of signifying the sword of state, the sword actually represents Sir Lucas's displeasure at his wife for having an affair, forever separating the two. Folklore has it that the tomb possesses a cure for warts and skin complaints. Rub your wart on a pin and leave the pin on top of the tomb. As the pin rusts, the wart withers and falls off. Further along the path and just over a small medieval bridge, you come to the ruins of the Priory and Hospital of St. John the Baptist. The Priory was founded in the early 13th century by Simon de Rochefort for the Fratre Cruciferi, the Order of the Crutched Friars. Today, the nave and chancel and a striking three-light window in the eastern wall can still be seen. Trim is a lively and vibrant town. More information on things to do, festivals and events can be discovered on the Boyne Valley app or online on discoverboynevalley.ie. Hill of Ward and Rathmore Church Just to the east of Athboy, you can find Tlachta, known as the Hill of Ward, this site is a quadrivalent earthwork, meaning it has a series of four ditches and earthen banks. It is one of a very few such enclosures, along with the Rath of the Synods on the hill of Tara and Rathra near Rathcrochan in County Roscommon. Archaeologists believe that the number of ditches corresponds to the status of the site. The greater the number of ditches, the higher the status. These complex sites are thought to have been of extremely high status, and possibly originated in the Late Bronze Age or Early Iron Age as ceremonial enclosures. The enigmatic site of Tlachta is full of mythology and folklore. It is believed by some to be named after a druidess, the daughter of the mythical sun god figure Mogruith, 
named in other sources as the executioner of John the Baptist. Alternatively, Tlachta is often translated as earth spear. The word Locht, appearing within the name, also derives from a term for an ancient burial place. Archaeologists from University College Dublin have identified that the site does indeed have ancient roots back to the Neolithic period over 5,000 years ago. Through the 17th century historian Geoffrey Keating, Tlachtka has become associated with the Festival of Samhain, the precursor to our modern Halloween. On Samhain Eve, it is believed that a great fire was lit on the site, summoning all the priests, augurs and druids of Ireland to consume the sacrifices that were offered to their pagan gods. It was decreed that all the fires within the kingdom were to be extinguished and rekindled using the sacred flame of Tlachta, and this ritual is still remembered today. Nearby, you can discover a wonderfully atmospheric medieval parish church just outside the town of Athboy in rolling Meath pastureland. Rathmore Church was founded in the 15th century by the Plunkett family and was dedicated to St. Lawrence. The Plunketts resided at Rathmore Castle, which is in one of the fields adjacent to the church, but of which now very little remains above ground. The castle and church were held by the Plunketts for generations, until the 17th century, when they were given to the Bly family. There are records of rectors present at the church until the late 17th century, when the parish became united with Athboy. The church probably began to fall into disrepair after that time. Today, the church is an atmospheric ruin, heavy with history and full of remarkable medieval sculpture. Loch Crew Cairns. The incredible passage tomb cemetery of Loch Crew is located near the village of Oldcastle in County Meath. The cemetery encompasses some 30 Neolithic passage tombs, though the most striking feature of this archaeological landscape of Loch Crew are the three large tombs that dominate the summit of the three steep hills Patrickstown, Carnbane West, and Carnbane East. The most visited is Carnbane East because it has the largest of the tombs, Carn T, the focal point of the whole cemetery. Carn T dates back to approximately 3000 BC and is surrounded by a number of smaller tombs. The large tomb measures around 35 metres in diameter, has a cruciform chamber and some of the finest examples of Neolithic art in Ireland. Visit during the autumn or spring equinox to witness sunlight entering the chamber to illuminate the inside of the tomb. The Irish name of Loch Crewe, means the Hill of the Witch. Folklore has it that the monuments at Loch Crewe were formed when a witch called on Calliach Vera was challenged to drop an apron full of stones on each of the three Loch Crewe peaks. If she succeeded, she would be proclaimed the ruler of all Ireland. She was successful on the first two peaks, but missed the third and fell to her death. Kells 
Kells has a treasure trove of superb heritage sites to discover. Kells, or Cianinus Moor, meaning Great Fort, was associated with legendary figures from the Irish sagas, like Con of the Hundred Battles and Cormac MacArt. Evidence of the importance of the area during the prehistoric period can be seen in the enormous hill fort on the Hill of Lloyd to the northeast of the town. Here you can visit the unusual folly in the shape of a lighthouse, known as the Spire of Lloyd. It was constructed in 1791 and stands at the summit of the hill fort, with outstanding views over the landscape. From the top of the spire, the Earl of Bective could see the Hedford estate and all the way to his lands in County Cavan. The town of Kells rose to prominence in the early medieval period, when the High King Dermid Umail Shocknell granted the Dune, or Fort of Cianinus, to St. Colum Kill in the 6th century to establish a monastery. By the early 10th century, Kells had become an important monastery, and its circular monastic enclosures are still evident in the streets of the town today, surrounding St. Columba's Church, the Round Tower, and the remarkable High Crosses. The Round Tower probably served as a bellhouse, and would have been an obvious marker in the landscape to weary pilgrims travelling to visit the sacred relics of St. Column Kill. This tower also has a darker story, for it was within it that Murkad Umailshaknal, King of Mida and High King of Tara, was murdered in 1076. Close to the tower is one of the early medieval high crosses at Kells. This, the South Cross, was crafted in the 9th century. It was the only high cross to have borne the name of its maker, having once borne an inscription in Latin, now sadly worn away, that read, Murdoch made this. Two other early medieval high crosses are within the walls of the monastic site. The North Cross, which has biblical depictions, and the so-called Unfinished Cross, which is located just to the side of the 18th century church. The finest high cross at Kells is now located just outside the old courthouse. The cross is 9th century and stands almost three and a half metres tall. It depicts stories from the Bible, but also displays some more unusual designs, like the Celtic spirals, which may have been inspired by the tombs of the Boyne Valley. You can also see wrestling figures, horsemen with shields, centaurs and a wonderful depiction of a deer hunt. Along with the monastic site, Kells also boasts a rare example of an early Irish church known as St. Column Kills House, located on Church Lane. The stone-built church possibly dates to as early as the 9th century, and local tradition has it that the famous Book of Kells was completed in this building. The Book of Kells is one of the greatest treasures of medieval Europe. It was produced in around 800 AD and is a beautifully illuminated collection of the Gospels, Today, it is housed in Trinity College, Dublin, and it provides breathtaking evidence of the skill and faith of early Christian Ireland. Today, Kells continues its legacy with vibrant cultural and arts events throughout the year. Full details can be found in the Boyne Valley app and website discoverboynevalley.ie. Dunamore Round Tower Legend has it that a monastery was founded at Dunamore by St. Patrick, who placed it in the care of his disciple St. Cassin. 
Here you can find one of the best preserved round towers in Ireland. It dates to the 12th century and stands some 26 metres tall. It's unique amongst Ireland's round towers as it bears a depiction of the crucifixion above the doorway. It's also unusual as it lacks the openings at the uppermost level for the bell house. This is presumably down to the 19th century reconstruction and renovation of the upper levels. Next to the tower, you can see the ruins of a 15th century church with a tall stone gable. This church incorporates stone heads that were taken from an earlier Romanesque church that once stood on this site, giving further evidence for the long legacy of Christian worship here. In common with a number of the other ancient monasteries in the Boyne Valley, Dunamore was raided and plundered on a number of occasions by the Vikings. The sight of their longships on the river would have caused fear and panic across the surrounding countryside. They founded one of their first settlements near the Boyne Valley at Anagassan, at the mouth of the River Glide in County Louth, in around 840 AD, before going on to establish their largest base at Dublin. Slane Castle Perhaps most famous today for popular rock concerts, Slane Castle was originally the fortress of the Flemings, who were granted the lands in the wake of the Anglo-Norman conquest of Leinster. The Flemings built their castle on a high, rocky outcrop that looks across the River Boyne. However, their lands and holdings were forfeited when they joined the Catholic Confederacy in their rebellion of 1641. The Flemings were one of the most powerful Catholic families in Leinster, and their lands were returned to them by King James II in 1687. This was to be but a brief respite. The defeat of James and his Jacobite followers at the Battle of the Boyne, and the eventual victory of the Protestant King William of Orange, spelled disaster for the Flemings, and they lost Slane and all their lands forever. By the end of the 17th century, the land was given to the Conningham family. In 1700, they spent the vast sum of £30,000 to transform the old Fleming Castle into a Dutch-style grand house. The house was then wholly redeveloped in the late 18th century, and it is the culmination of work by a number of notable architects, such as James Wyatt, Francis Johnston, Capability Brown and Thomas Hopper. The castle continues to evolve to this day, with the construction of a whisky distillery and a visitor centre to help fortify visitors to the castle. The village of Slane that grew in the shadow of the castle has four identical classical houses that face each other diagonally at the crossroads, providing a handsome and unique square. A local story tells that these houses were once the homes of the female members of the Conningham family, built in such a way that the sisters could keep an eye on each other. Of Slane. Like its near neighbour Tara, the Hill of Slane is also steeped in Irish myth, legend, and history. According to Irish mythology, this was the burial place of Slána MacDéle, king of the legendary Fair Bullock. It's from Dua Slána, meaning burial mound of Slána, 
that we get the modern name Slane. The Hill of Slane features in the legends that grew around St. Patrick. The most important rituals surrounding the pagan festival of Bealtaine centred around fire. All the fires across the country would be extinguished to mark the end of the winter and a great fire that could be seen for miles around would then be lit at dawn on the Hill of Tara, symbolising the dawn of a new year. Patrick sought to undermine this pagan practice by lighting a huge fire on the Hill of Slain. This burned throughout the night before the king's warriors managed to capture Patrick and bring him to Tara to answer to the king. Legend has it that Patrick then managed to perform many feats and miracles to prove to the king that the Christian god was far more powerful than the old gods. And in one of the most famous of the stories, it's said that he used a three-leaved shamrock to explain the mysteries of Christianity to the king. While the king had no wish to convert to Christianity himself, he allowed Patrick to continue on his mission to spread Christianity across Ireland. Though the stories of Patrick at Slane are likely to be the product of later legend, the Hill of Slane was undoubtedly important to the early Irish church, as a monastery was founded on the hill by St. Urk, who died in 514. Though nothing remains of the early 6th century monastery, today visitors to the Hill of Slane can find the well-preserved 16th century Franciscan church and college. Both are thought to date to 1512, when Sir Christopher Fleming, Baron of Slane, founded the site for the Franciscan order. The church has a particularly fine bell tower with a large Gothic window. Look out for the stone head leering from above the windows of the tower on one side of the church. Francis Ledwidge Museum The museum is housed in the cottage where Francis Ledwidge was born in 1887, near Slane, the eighth of nine children of a poor family. When Francis was only five, his father died prematurely. This tragedy forced his widow and children, including Francis, to seek work to avoid penury. Francis left school at 13 and took whatever work he could find as a farmhand, road worker, shop assistant and copper miner. Despite his hard beginnings, he had a love for education and continued his studies whenever he could. He became renowned for his writings and when he was just 14, his works began to be published in the local newspaper, the Drogheda Independent. Local aristocrat and noted writer Lord Dunsany became a patron of the young Francis and introduced him to fellow writers like W.B. Yeats and Catherine Tynan. He granted Francis access to his vast library in Dunsany Castle and helped to prepare his first collection of poetry, Songs of the Fields, for publication in 1916. Francis was a patriot and Irish nationalist and with his brother Joseph founded the slain branch of the Irish Volunteers in 1914 to secure home rule. However, Francis enlisted to fight in the First World War and joined Lord Dunsany's regiment, the 5th Battalion Royal Inishkilling Fusiliers. This was against the advice and entreaties of Dunsany himself, 
who offered him financial support if he stayed away from the war. Francis saw action in Salonica and the Dardanelles and survived the carnage of Gallipoli. He continued his writing throughout the war, sending his works back to Lord Dunsany. On the 31st of July 1917, Francis was working to construct roads in preparation for an assault during the Third Battle of Ypres. While Francis was drinking tea in a mud hole with his comrades, a shell exploded, killing the poet and five others. He left a moving legacy of poetry that speaks of his deep love of Ireland, Meath and the Boyne Valley. His friend and patron Lord Dunsany arranged for more of Francis' works to be published, writing that he was astonished by the brilliance of that eye that had looked at the fields of Meath and seen there all the simple birds and flowers with a vividness which made those pages like a magnifying glass, through which one looked at familiar things for the first time. Townley Hall Entry to the house is by appointment only. Guided tours available on request. The entrance to the estate of Townley Hall lies close to a great curve in the River Boyne. A long wooded avenue leads to the handsome Georgian mansion, built in the late 18th century and designed by the celebrated classical architect Francis Johnston. Townley Hall is considered to be his masterpiece, with an austere exterior that houses a wonderful circular hall and staircase with a domed ceiling. Though today the house is not accessible to the public, you can enjoy a wonderful woodland walk through the grounds that inspired Francis Ledwidge to write about meeting a robin in the tranquil grounds of the estate. In joyous youth long, long ago, beside the River Boyne, through lonely woods and sparkling streams, I've wandered many a time. I love to scan those distant days, and sadly I recall each hour I sat near the red-breast bird that piped in Townley Hall. In the grounds, you can discover more evidence of the Boyne Valley's sacred prehistoric past in another passage tomb. Like its far bigger near neighbours at the Bruna Boyne complex, the tomb of Townley Hall also dates back around 5,000 years. However, rather than the more elaborate cruciform-shaped chamber of Newgrange, the chamber at Townley Hall is of simple rectangular shape, a continuation of the passage. The passageway is aligned with the summer solstice, an important and sacred time of year in prehistoric Ireland. The summer solstice, when the power of the sun was at its highest, was seen as an important time for fertility, when the harvests of the coming year were assured and blessed. Interestingly, archaeologists have discovered evidence at Townley Hall that people had been living in a settlement on the site before the tomb was constructed. Artifacts of everyday life, like courseware pottery and flint tools, were unearthed. The tomb appears to have been constructed immediately after the settlement was abandoned. Perhaps it can be speculated that the cremated human remains inside the tomb are of important people in the community. When they died, the settlement symbolically died too, and the tomb commemorates the community as much as the individuals interred within.
Old Mellifont Abbey. Mellifont Abbey was the first Cistercian Abbey in Ireland, known as the Mother House, a base from which the community expanded, adding more and more institutions known as daughter houses across Ireland. The name Mellifont comes from the Latin Fons Mellis, meaning Fount of Honey. Mellifont Abbey was founded in 1142 by St Malachy of Armagh. The abbey was extremely successful from its earliest stages and developed rapidly. Within just five years of the foundation of Mellifont, in 1147, a daughter abbey had already been established nearby at Bective, near Trim. The Cistercians were largely from Clairvaux in France, and these French monks brought new ideas about monasticism to Ireland. It is recorded that at least 21 abbeys were founded by monks from Mellifont. Mellifont was one of the first to be dissolved in 1539 during the dissolution of the monasteries. It became the private fortified home of Sir Edward Moore. The Treaty of Mellifont, which ended the Nine Years' War, was signed here in 1603. Later, Mellifont played host to William of Orange, who established his headquarters here before the Battle of the Boyne in 1690. The most striking building at Mellifont is the beautiful Lavabo. This building dates to the early 13th century. Octagonal in shape, it served as the ritual washroom, where the monks would wash their hands before entering the refectory for meals. Excavations have revealed fragments of lead pipe that brought the water into the central fountain. The interior was decorated with delicate images of plants and birds. A number of fragments of the fine architectural features are on display in the visitor centre. Monaster Boyce A monastery was founded here by Saint Buiha in the 6th century and it's from this early saint that Monaster Boyce takes its name Monaster Buha, Buiha's Monastery. Over time, it flourished and grew in both size and prominence. Today, however, most of it has vanished, and all that is visible is the very heart of the monastery, with a fine round tower and three high crosses, one of which is the finest high cross in the world. The round tower is approximately 28 metres tall and is said to have housed the monastery's library and other treasures. The annals of the four masters sadly record that the tower, with its books and many treasures, was burned in 1097. The South Cross probably dates to the early 10th century. It's often known as Muradhuk's Cross, as it bears an inscription in Irish asking for a prayer for Muradhuk. The cross is decorated with biblical depictions from the Old and New Testaments. The West Cross is the tallest high cross in Ireland, standing at nearly seven metres tall. Thanks to its size, it also has the largest number of figure sculpture panels of any high cross. As on the South Cross, these panels are beautifully carved with depictions of biblical stories. The North Cross stands within a small fenced area near the northern boundary of the site. 
it's much plainer than the south and west crosses. Next to it is an interesting sundial, which would have marked the passing of time for the monks of Monaster Boys, indicating the hours for prayers at 9am, 12 noon and 3pm. Drada. The name Drahada comes from the Irish Drihadaha, meaning the Bridge of the Ford. The town was founded in the late 12th century by the Norman Lord of Meath, Hugh de Lacey. Situated near the mouth of the River Boyne, Drahada was perfectly placed to become one of Ireland's most important ports during the medieval period, and the town grew wealthy through trade right across Europe. To protect its growing wealth, strong town walls were constructed, enclosing some 113 acres of the town. A series of towers and defensive gates were also created, including St. Lawrence's Gate. Today, this gate is the sole survivor of the 30 towers and gates that once lined Drogheda's walls. Drogheda's defences were most severely tested in the 17th century, especially during the Rebellion of 1641. In November that year, a large rebel army besieged Drogheda, though it was eventually repulsed. The walls were strengthened following the siege, but in 1649, Drogheda faced a far greater threat. After the English Civil War, Oliver Cromwell brought his veteran New Model Army to Ireland to defeat the rebels. The first town he attacked was Drogheda, as he needed a secure port to ensure his army could be supplied through the winter. The town was defended by four regiments, made up of soldiers of the Irish Catholic Confederation and English Royalist soldiers, who had fled to Ireland following their defeat in England. Cromwell commanded a force of approximately 12,000 men, and his naval forces blockaded the harbour. Cromwell concentrated his forces on the southern side of the town to unleash a swift and savage attack in one place. His artillery pounded the walls at two points and opened two breaches in the walls. He sent a message to the commander of the defending garrison, Sir Arthur Aston, demanding his surrender. Aston refused, in the hope that the Earl of Ormond, who was stationed nearby with 4,000 troops, would come to their rescue. His hopes were not to be realised. At 5pm on 11th of September, Cromwell launched simultaneous assaults on both the breaches. Though the defenders fought bravely, they were short of gunpowder and ammunition. They were pushed back and eventually their defence collapsed. The remnants took refuge in Millmount Fort, while Cromwell's forces quickly pushed into the town. Cromwell was enraged at the sight of the corpses of so many of his men and ordered that no quarter be given to the defenders. The 200 or so in Millmount Fort were persuaded to surrender on the promise of their lives. However, when they were disarmed, they too were butchered. Sir Arthur Aston was horrendously killed, reportedly beaten to death with his own wooden leg by Cromwellian soldiers seeking his reputed stash of gold. Other defenders, who sought refuge in St Peter's Church, were killed when Cromwell's men set fire to the steeple. The last of the defenders and any priests or friars captured were either killed or taken prisoner and transported to Barbados. The massacre of Drogheda still resonates today as one of the darkest days in Irish history. You can discover more of the story of the siege and its aftermath in the excellent Millmount Museum, located within the Old Fort. 
Due to its distinctive shape, Millmount is known locally as the Cup and Saucer. Today, it is an iconic feature of Drogheda and features in many of the stories of the town's history. One of the legends tells of Millmount being a burial mound, the burial place of Aurgin, the ancient Celtic poet. In the 12th century, it became the site of a Norman fortification known as a Mott and Bailey. During the Napoleonic Wars in the early 19th century, its strategic position was exploited again when a Martello tower was constructed on the site to protect Drogheda from French ships. St. Peter's Church, now the Church of Ireland Parish Church, was founded by Hugh de Lacey and given to the Augustinian canons of Chlanthony Prima in Monmouthshire, Wales. The church flourished, along with the town, throughout the medieval period, and by the 16th century it contained six chapels. After their storm of Drogheda, Cromwell's forces contributed funds for the repair of the church. However, by 1747, the old medieval church had become dilapidated and was demolished to make way for a new church. There are several fascinating gravestones and effigies in the churchyard. Perhaps the most striking is the remarkably ghoulish tomb of Sir Edmund Golding and his wife, Elizabeth Fleming. This tomb effigy dates from the earlier half of the 16th century. It is known as a cadaver tomb and depicts the decomposing bodies surrounded by their burial shrouds. These tombs are reminders of our brief mortality. St. Peter's Roman Catholic Church was built in the 19th century and it contains the shrine to the Catholic martyr St. Oliver Plunkett. He was born at Loch Crewe near Oldcastle in County Meath in 1625 during the penal times. He trained abroad to become a Catholic priest and returned to Ireland to become Primate of Ireland and Archbishop of Armagh. He established a number of schools and a Jesuit college in Drogheda as the penal laws had begun to relax. However, King Charles II grew increasingly paranoid about a possible Catholic plot to assassinate him and demanded that the penal laws be once again strictly enforced. St Oliver went into hiding as he was accused of conspiring with the French but was arrested and taken to England, where he was tried for treason, having previously been found not guilty in Ireland. King Charles II ignored many pleas for leniency, and St Oliver was found guilty. He was taken to Tyburn, where he was hanged, drawn and quartered. He was the last Catholic martyr to die in England. His head became a sacred relic. In the 20th century, it was placed in a shrine within the church, where it remains a revered, if somewhat grisly, reminder of his sacrifice. Today, Drogheda is a vibrant town and maintains its strong cultural traditions, including High Lanes Municipal Art Gallery, one of Ireland's most important visual art spaces. The gallery is sited in the former Drogheda Franciscan Church and Friary and houses the town's most treasured heirlooms. A ceremonial sword and mace presented to Drogheda Corporation by King William III after the Battle of the Boyne. Drogheda is also home to many festivals. Theatre, music, traditional arts and literature festivals take place in Drogheda throughout the year. You can discover more in the What's On section of the Boyne Valley app or online at discoverboynevalley.ie.
Bewley House and Gardens. The handsome Bewley House dates back to the late 17th century. The present structure was turned into the house we see today by the Tichborns in the mid-17th and early 18th century and has remained largely unchanged since. Originally a stone plunket castle, the present structure is a mixture of brick and stone which was rendered in the late 19th century, leaving exposed the Dutch brick surrounds to windows and doors. This Dutch style is unique in Ireland, as is the wonderful interior architecture with fine Baroque wood carvings, ceiling paintings and ornate plasterwork. The best way to discover the history and beautiful architecture is to take one of the fascinating guided tours. The stunning gardens are part of the Boyne Valley Garden Trail. Today, there are two popular summer festivals. You can find the full details in the Boyne Valley app and website discoverboynevalley.ie. Battle of the Boyne The Boyne Valley was the setting of some of the key events of the later medieval and post-medieval periods in Irish history, the most famous being the Battle of the Boyne, the story of which is told in the modern Battle of the Boyne Visitor Centre at Oldbridge. In the 1690s, Ireland became a theatre of war for international and religious politics. Catholic forces supporting James II fought against the Protestant supporters of William of Orange to decide who would become the King of England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland. For the Jacobite forces, the war was a struggle for Irish sovereignty, rights for Catholics and land ownership and a revocation of the harsh laws imposed on Irish Catholics following the Cromwellian conquest decades earlier. By 1690, the Jacobites controlled nearly all of Ireland, with the exception of Ulster. For the Williamite forces, the war was a struggle to maintain English and Protestant rule in Ireland. They deeply mistrusted the Jacobites and believed it would lead to the wholesale massacre of the Protestant population if the Irish were to gain supremacy. Though the majority of fighters on the Jacobite side were Irish Catholic and a large proportion of the Williamite forces were Ulster Protestants, this was a truly European war and many nationalities were present on the battlefield. The Battle of the Boyne was a pivotal moment of the war. Although relatively few casualties were suffered on either side, an estimated 1,500 Jacobites and 500 Williamites it scared James II enough to flee the battlefield and Ireland and exile himself safely in France. The war continued in his absence and became far bloodier. By October 1691, Jacobite resistance ended and William of Orange became secure in his position as king. His exclusively Protestant Irish parliament introduced the severe penal laws that restricted life for Catholics by banning priests and limiting the amount of land or property Catholics could own, as well as banning them from voting. Elements of this extensive and intricate legislation continued into the 19th century.
Dulik Abbey. Dulik was originally founded by St. Kianan, sometime before 489 AD, who is said to have built the first stone church here in Ireland. You can see evidence of the early phase of the monastery in the remains of the church, and two high crosses, along with a number of early grave slabs. The surrounding streets still follow the path of the ancient circular enclosure that once encircled and protected the monastery. The office and life of St. Kianan are on display in Dulik Library. In the 12th century, Dulik became an Augustinian priory. The surviving remains consist of a large tower that is thought to date to the late 15th century, along with a nave and chancel church. Inside the church you can see some fascinating medieval and post-medieval grave monuments, including the effigy of Bishop Dr. Cusack, and one in memory of John Bellew, who was killed at the Battle of Ockram in 1691. At the entrance to the village of Dulik, you can find the striking four-and-a-half-metre-high sculpture called The Family, by artist Morris Harron. The sculpture features a mother, father and three children with a tree, whose individual leaves are designed to represent various aspects of the local community including a horse being shooed by a blacksmith, fruit-picking and other local traditions. Conclusion Thank you for travelling through time with us in the beautiful Boyne Valley. We hope you enjoyed your tour. You can discover more about this remarkable place by visiting discoverboynevalley.ie. This project is part financed by the European Union's Interreg Cross-Border Programme, managed by the Special EU Programmes Body. This guide was produced by Abarta Heritage on behalf of Meath County Council. <laughs>